are traveling through another dimension. It is a dimension as vast as space, and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between thought and superstition. And it lies between the pit of our fears and the summit of our knowledge. It is a monstrous, macabre, Frankenstein creation known as dynastic rule, for now. I am, as always, uh, just another human being doing... Uh, I mean, I wish I could say the best I can. I strive to do the best I can. I strive to do, and I attempt to do things well where possible. Uh, many times I fail. Many times I fail. I'm so glad uh, that uh, you could all join me tonight for this uh, bizarre, kind of impromptu, kind of uh, free-form style show. I mean, really... Trying to do this in the current environment where people are just becoming super wise to the fact that uh, a lot of podcasting is bullshit, along with a lot of other stuff. I mean, most books that are written, bullshit. A lot of shitty movies are made. I mean, don't even get me started about poetry. Almost all poetry is totally worthless. The remainder, incredibly essential to uh, the documentation of uh, the human experience. I mean, you could say the same thing about plays. It's really remarkable when you when you look at the the quote unquote big plays that won like the big awards. Some of them kind of blow. You can kind of win a big award for a play that kind of fucking blows. I'm just gonna put that out there for any of you uh, aspiring playwrights. You know, just give it a go. I mean, fuck. You write a fucking play that just quotes twenty pages of Pulp Fiction dialogue straight up and. You could win the fucking Pulitzer Prize right now. I mean, theater's dead. Theater's always been dead. I find the deadness of theater to be a very interesting conundrum, very interesting kind of Gordian knot to try and wrap one's head around, you know? Because the theater never was what it once was. And yet it uh, kind of remains. Like, how many art forms have remained even in a kind of rump state? over the course of the centuries. I mean, for what, uh, whatever else you want to say about theater, I mean, you go to Chicago, you know, you hang out with Michael Shannon, you audition for a few plays, you can do some legit shit. You go to London, you go to Russia. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of acting centers around the world. It is interesting how elevated celebrities and actors are in spite of the fact that I don't really think the discipline or the craft or whatever you want to call it of acting of performance of theater that itself i don't think is actually that well respected or at least not that well people don't really engage with it as like an idea they just kind of mostly accept the content at face value i mean there's no there's no social kind of uh metacognition going on vis-a-vis narratives so as far as i'm concerned uh you know why not at uh, 2 10 in the a.m pacific standard time broadcasting out of the do not give a fuck studios why one just uh, can't record one's thoughts and try and uh you know add their little bit of bullshit to uh the pile i mean really like i think a big fact that has to be addressed as far as i'm concerned is hey you know, what's up, everybody, all, all these podcast listeners, I love you, but, I mean, can we just accept that podcasting is also kind of bullshit now? I mean, you know, the golden age of radio really only lasted about, like, 10 years. 
you know, people think of radio as this thing that was just like, oh man, yeah, everyone used to listen to the radio like for crazy amounts of time for decades and decades. No, not really. I mean, like TV kind of destroyed it pretty quickly. And I think, I mean, along with so much else, along with uh, almost everything else, the discipline or the industry of podcasting is uh, very susceptible to all kinds of kind of compromising and coercive kind of cultural forces. I mean, I've made a decision. The, the reason why I moved the show to the Do Not Give a Fuck Studios is that I realized I need to completely change the kind of brand proposition, the uh, the value add of this show. I mean, first off, I need to acknowledge that there's no value being added, or at least renounce my attachment to the idea that that value is being added. Really what I'm going to do from now on from the Do Not Give a Fuck Studios, which, you know, I'm really happy to, to be partnering with them. The uh, costs are very low. You know, they don't really give a fuck, but hey, that's what, why they call themselves what they did. I mean, it's really just like a glorified kind of uh, public diary. I will say, I really want to thank everyone first off, because, uh, I mean, there's at least a cohort of people listening to this possibly right now who listened to the drop from yesterday, it dropped 22 hours ago, okay? The first uh, Hegelian combination, the first kind of red mage episode of uh, the podcast where I talk shit and then I talk a little bit of hockey to keep the hockey fans slightly happy and then I talk some more shit. Uh, episode titled The Macabre Experiment of Dynastic Rule Returns? Question mark? I like the question mark there because it really leaves things open. Uh, I gotta be honest, like, you know, I, uh, I have not released an episode of Night Rule in over 20 months, and the fact that the number of you listened to it kind of right away little blew my mind a little bit. I mean, no marketing, no effort, no real kind of uh, emotional intelligence or uh, market knowledge or really, like, lacking any kind of really redeeming qualities as a human being generally somehow me just releasing this random shit there was i mean you know it's not like millions of people listening to it but there's enough of you who just straight up were just like oh this crazy motherfucker released some shit all right let's give it a try and it was not as though it was like an easy episode to listen to i mean let's be honest that was there was like five minute long experimental fucking punk songs and shit i really kind of just like i really like an album i think a great move for a really great timeless seminal album at least if it's an album that's trying to break new ground i mean i'm not talking about an album that's that's trying to enter any kind of the it's not trying to get into the great american songbook or the great you know the rock and roll hall of fame but an album that's trying to like push the boundaries of what musicality can be one, one really good thing to do if you're doing one of those albums i think personally just ha uh, throwing this out there make sure the first song really tells the listener like fuck you kind of like uh, B2 Unit, the second album, second solo album of Sakamoto Ryuch. The first song is like that. I mean, fuck. It's like basically, it's basically a song that someone plays to be like, hey, are you in this for real? Are you, are you just going to stop listening after 45 seconds because I'm doing some crazy shit? Because if you get past the first song, the entire rest of the album is like a, a series of siren songs. Like, uh, I, I, I challenge anyone to try and resist the musical charisma of B2 Unit by Sakamoto Ryuch. But I mean, like, this is the first song on the album. And like, the first time I listened to this album, I didn't finish this song. I stopped listening to the album because I was like, this is some crazy shit. I can't handle this. 
that's actually something I do a lot. I don't know if anyone else does that, but like if I'm watching a movie or I'm listening to a, an album or I'm reading a book and it just gets too intense, if it's just like too amazing, <laughs> I'm not afraid to take a break. Um, yeah, we started with uh, Modern Life from Devo was the intro track, but let's, uh, let's check in with uh, Sakamoto. actually quite sad i haven't mentioned this in the podcast yet but i feel like i should mention before i talk about hockey don't worry everybody we're 14 minutes in here um we'll talk hockey soon is what i'm trying to say but yeah there was a a passing a really uh heartbreaking passing i mean uh takahashi yukihiro uh of ymo composer of one of my all-time favorite debut albums. What a guy. I mean, he was a musician that was just kind of operating, like he was flying without a net. Uh, I mean, all the guys in YMO were, I mean, a lot of great musicians were, or, or, a lot of great musicians operate under that same mindset. Uh, that guy was so special, it's going to take me a few years to grasp the fact that he's actually, like, gone. I mean, he, you know, he, was, uh, he wasn't the youngest guy, but he wasn't the oldest guy either. Um, and I think, like, it's interesting when you look at his work, because, I mean, like, YMO is, is so amazing and so consistently great, and then you have Hasono, one-third of YMO, and he's just, like, he's done so many albums, there's, like, kind of almost no point in trying to, like, fully comprehend the guy's musical output. Like, he's just, he's been around for so long. He was a rock and roll legend in the 60s, went on to produce, I don't know, like, I'd guess, like, 500 albums at least, plus release all kinds of stuff. I mean, like, he's, he's just kind of, like, almost impossible to grasp. He's kind of, like, a force of nature. And then you have uh, Sakamoto Ryuch, who's almost, like, I mean, he himself, I think, has has gone on the record to say that he has sometimes suspected that he's the reincarnation of uh, Debussy. Debussy? Debussy. Which seems totally logical to me because he's a savant musically, and he has a, obviously a little bit more of a classical kind of flavor to him than Hisono or Takahashi because uh, obviously he's a, uh, was a pianist to start, but I mean, even as just a producer, if you just, if you took, if you erased all of Sakamoto's solo albums, all of his soundtracks, he's done amazing soundtracks, and you just looked at the shit that he produced? Fuck. Incredible. But then, I always thought Takahashi... I always thought Yukihiro was, like, almost like the... I don't want to say the most pure, but there was almost like an innocence to him. There was a real innocence to him compared to Hosono and Sakamoto, because Hosono and Sakamoto are just so obviously like geniuses. They seem almost untouchable. Um, and a lot of their work is very uh, esoteric in nature, even though it, it does deal with very deep and meaningful themes, and it delves into them profoundly. But there's almost like a little bit more of a philosophical bent to their lyricism. Whereas uh, Yukihiro was like a romantic. He was like the He was the guy who wrote the cheesy love songs and did the covers of stop in the name of love and his albums are all so different 
and kind of they have a wildness to them where there's like maybe it doesn't seem as consistent uh maybe as like the ymo stuff or the sakamoto or the sono stuff or like Kraftwerk or the beatles or whatever you know band that just seems perfect you want to compare them to um but uh yuki hero just like he just did it he just like he was he was releasing like an album a year it seemed like tons of collaborations you know just always game he was he, there was like a he's like the ryan nugent hopkins almost he's like a hero he's a very heroic figure to me i'm gonna miss him I'm, I'm gonna have to try and like listen to his music a lot more um but yeah we'll dedicate this episode to uh takahashi yukihiro all right we're f- almost 20 minutes in uh let's just delve on a little bit of hockey and uh, also just try and generalize it for the uh, general audience so let's see the oilers played the bruins tonight the boston bruins um you know home of the amazing h the boston h is is by far my favorite h it's by far my favorite h h is a very controversial letter slash consonant slash sound there's an incredible amount of linguistic disagreement about that shit everybody i mean i hope that i can just someday learn to grasp a fraction of the totality of the linguistic controversy over the sound of H and the sound of R. And those are the two ones that spring to mind. Uh, you know, a nice comeback from uh, behind win by the boys tonight in Boston. I mean, Boston, the Boston Bruins, just so everyone uh, is aware, are ridiculously good this year. I mean, historic season? Have they already established a, a fucking record in a hundred-year-old league for wins in a season or some shit with like 15 games to go i mean they're 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 kind of a wonder to behold so when the oilers like were down early on it was tough you know i'll be honest i wasn't i didn't really have the like uh spiritual vigor to fully deal with it but i was like you know whatever it's an oilers game they still have a really good chance coming back here i mean they're the oilers and uh thankfully Thanks to goals by uh, Ryan McLeod of the Clan McLeod, the most famous Highlander. I mean, really, like the Ryan McLeod, Ryan McLeod's career so far, his young career in the NHL, is really better than a- anything after the first Highlander. I mean, obviously, I don't. Uh, the TV show was okay, I guess, but the first Highlander was uh, something made on a whim and a prayer. It was made by the seat of its pants. It was made with uh, glue and gum and duct tape and. American cheese. And it really achieved great things. I mean, through no small part, uh, through the, uh, you have to credit a lot of, uh, you have to credit the Queen soundtrack with a lot of that, for sure. Um, plus some kind of lucky breaks, I think, vis-a-vis the kind of story and the climax. I mean, obviously, like, the performances were solid. There's, like, not really a bad performance in Highlander. I mean, it's a cheesy 80s action movie. But I don't know how many performances you can point to in Highlander and say that's a bad performance, really. Like, it's uh, it's actually a pretty legit little movie. Um, but Ryan McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Ryan McLeod of the Clan McLeod, way better than Highlander 2 or 3. No question. And then Evan Bouchard. I mean, uh, for those of you who don't follow hockey, uh, there's a lot of French names. I, th- I feel like in the North American experience, culturally, I mean, besides being a fan of George, George St. Pierre, uh, just exposure to the French language. I mean, unless you're from Louisiana, of course, or Quebec, or um, any other Francophone community kind of nestled in and amongst the Anglophone mainstream, hegemonic, uh, triumphalist 
colonizing fucking power. Um, you know, NHL hockey is kind of one of the few places where you see f- a lot of French names. I mean, a lot of international names in general. Evan Bouchard, of course, Anglophone. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of Americans that look at his name and say, oh, it's uh, Evan Bouchard. Evan Bouchard scores uh, the goal for the Oilers. Evan Bouchard. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel sad for anyone that says Bouchard. Like, I think, I think you're kind of missing out on just enjoying the smallest grasp of, like, what French is all about. Like, French is kind of amazing. Like, what other language exists where they're just, like, literally, like, hey, let's have, like, eight letters in a row? We're not going to pronounce any of those motherfuckers. We're not going to pronounce a single one. We're not going to pronounce any of that shit, and we're still going to know what we're saying because we're French motherfuckers, okay? We're like Napoleon. I mean, I, I don't really support Macron, of course. But uh, it's it's interesting how, like, little... I mean, of all these motherfuckers, all these losers always going on about, like, uh, Western, quote-unquote, civilization. Like, how many of them are, like, studying the history of the French state? Because uh, if you're some mother when weird motherfucker, and it's always some weird motherfucker going on about, quote-unquote, Western civilization, which is... A misnomer, in my view. That's a whole other topic. We'll have to delve into that another time. And we certainly will. Like, then they're, they're not reading the fucking history of the French Revolution, really. They're not reading about the Enlightenment or Napoleon or, you know, the revolutions of the mid-19th century, etc. I mean, like, none of these motherfuckers going on about Western history actually read Western history. And when they do, they read it badly and stupidly and with a bias a prejudice uh an agenda if you're reading history with an agenda it's like watching the sopranos with the agenda with an agenda would you watch the sopranos with an agenda are you just gonna put on the sopranos and be like hey you know what all these loser fucking people who have podcasts have told me to watch the sopranos so you know i'm kind of skeptical fuck them i'm gonna uh, you can't you can't watch the sopranos with an agenda nor can you read history with an agenda nor should you watch hockey with an agenda you know the oilers won tonight nice 3-2 comeback win against the bruins who are again just fucking insanely good this year scary good like uh like the kind of good where you just like wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and you're like holy shit man fucking david pasternak it's like the Boston Bruins are the only team in the history of time this year who, when the trade deadline rolled around, everyone was just like, you know what? Like, why, why would they even trade for anybody? Like, they've won, like, every game. Like, why, why, why? Why would you trade? Why would you add anything? They're already on pace to be just, like, one of the most amazing regular season teams in the history of fucking Christendom. Probably in the history of worldwide religion overall. You know, taken uh, as a whole in a very imprecise fashion. There was a scary moment where like, it looked like uh, Jake DeBrusque might have uh, gotten injured. And it was uh, it kind of pulled at my heartstrings a little bit because it kind of spoke to, like, uh, I don't know, how sometimes life uh, can intersect, like the, the, the kind of streams of life can intersect in different ways. Because the announcer, the play-by-play announcer, Louis DeBrusque, is the father of Jake DeBrusque. So the Oilers play-by-play announcer, his son plays for the Bruins. And there was like a weird play where uh, Matthias Ekholm, the Viking that we should all know and love by now, uh, and uh, DeBrusque just kind of like didn't see each other. And this happens once in a while in hockey. It's really scary, actually, how how much it can fuck people up when this happens in hockey. But sometimes if they're just like looking the wrong way and they're skating for like literally a third of a second, and then another guy's looking the wrong way and skating for a third of a second, and then all of a sudden they like realize that they're like 
barreling in on each other and they're just going to collide blindly like fucking two lanes that have crossed over the double lines on the highway like fuck man hockey's insane fuck okay i'm sorry night roll fans but i do have to talk a little bit about uh some hockey stuff that dropped today because it's it's it kind of actually like is it jives with um i can't even talk about it i'm like too fucked up from even like thinking about it um there was an article that dropped today from a uh czech publication they published it in english um as like a special issue special edition uh and it's by uh, a former uh Oilers hockey player mr alice alice hemsky called the name of the article is the meaning of life this is uh from bez frazi i don't really know how to pronounce anything in czech i'm sorry i'll catch up on duolingo duolingo soon but like holy shit this is one of those things where uh as i mentioned like sometimes i'm I'm reading something or i'm watching something or i'm listening to something and it's just too much i just need to be like okay holy shit like this movie is amazing or this song or this album or this whatever is so amazing i just need to take a break and think about it for a second before i come back to it and i haven't even finished this fucking article yet i've read like i think about three quarters of it um but it's really like uh fucking beautiful beautiful piece of uh of writing it's interesting because you know we're definitely in a time where you know people that uh speak about speak speak out about uh a personal struggle uh a professional struggle struggle with mental illness a struggle with whatever that's to a certain extent there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction where it's like okay that's awesome and we all kind of support it a little bit and this article could very easily kind of like be in that same uh, kind of, it could be in that same kind of, uh, same kind of vein, but it's not, it's, it's very narrative. It's a very like first person stream of consciousness. He's literally like, this is just, you know, my story about uh, being like a young, like a uh, fucking 19 year old, 18 year old, whatever it was, uh, Czech kid who like came to Canada to play hockey struggled in school played hockey to just like escape kind of being like a failure like academically or whatever you know years later diagnosed with dyslexia but uh, i mean really like the majority of the kind of thrust of the piece is just about kind of his gratitude to the kindness he was showed um by a lot of the people it's kind of funny like the the, they they did pass a rule where like the the owner slash general manager of the team couldn't house the players anymore because it was a considered later on a salary cap violation but he talks about just like you know them just like asking him to move in giving him like a floor in their mansion taking care of him feeding him looking out for him kind of being like a, a parental figure for him and it's like literally you read this article man and it's like by the way Alice Hemsky describes it, it's like it literally just sounds like a total, it was a total lifeline for him. It literally sounds like the thing that he most needed at that time in his life. And then that was at a time where, like, you know, and he talks about it just like it wasn't exactly like, you know, the Czech national team, et cetera, playing in junior. It wasn't as though there was like this super supportive atmosphere player for the players. It was kind of like, you know what, you're you either play well or like fuck you and there's still that attitude in hockey to a certain extent it's really brutal it's like ballet like why do we have to treat the hockey players as though they're ballerinas and ballerinos 
Like, nobody should be treated that way. Not even the dancers. Um, but yeah, but he just goes into, like, you know what? Like, we, we, went, we went all the way to game... It starts with Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final in 2006. You know, the highlight, highlight of his entire NHL career, young career, and how he thought back then, like, hey, you know what? We're going to be right back here again. Like, like, we're ready to just, like, be, like, a contender from now on. And then... Night Rule listeners don't know, but the, the Oilers went on to just miss the playoffs forever after that. And then meanwhile, he's like, he's like been fucked up from so many hits to the head and just being smashed into the boards that he has like horrible like vertigo randomly at like possibly all times where just like his entire world feels like it's spinning and he just wants to like die. Meanwhile, for 10, 15 years, whatever the, I mean, it wasn't probably 10 and what was it how long was Hemsky in the uh, in Edmonton meanwhile for that entire time people were not worried at all about calling him soft or claiming that he you know oh he's the first one off at the end of practice and blah 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 and all this stuff and like I, I never subscribed to that at all at all because I mean just to be an NHL player period there's a certain level of toughness that's required but to be a player like Alice Hemsky who just wasn't really afraid and just, like, played his fucking heart out when it mattered, uh, like, a motherfucker. And me- meanwhile, it, there's one quote in the article that's just amazing where he's just like, I just like to say to anyone who, th- who criticized me for not being tough enough, they should have looked at my bleeding hands in between periods. Because, yeah, literally, motherfuckers are just hitting him in the hands with a hard piece of wood and or some kind of composite. Like, excuse me, Mr. Sports Writer, excuse me, Mr. Hockey Fan, Twitter user, is anyone coming, like, while you're typing on the keyboard, does someone come up and, and just hit you in the fucking hands with a piece of wood until you bleed? No, they don't. They don't. Like, cut him, cut him some fucking slack. The whole, like, oh, he's not tough enough, it's like, dude, like, have you seen an NHL game in real life? It's terrifying. It's like a Mad Max film. It's, like, literally something that, like, a normal person... A normal person or myself would not really be able to handle that well. And it's interesting because, like, I guess this is on my mind because a lot of our whipping boys, a lot of the, like, players that just, like, certain people and certain cohorts of people really like to just, like, fucking shit on. You know, they got moved out of the deadline. You know, we lost Pugliarvi. Everyone was a... He was a favorite punching bag for all kinds of people. They love fucking punching Pugliarvi. Did Pugliarvi ever punch them? No. Did anyone ever pronounce Yessi Pugliarvi's name properly? No. Did we ever show him that much respect? I mean, like, yeah, he was drafted fourth overall, and did did uh, uh, most of us, if not all of us, just want a little bit more out of him? Sure. But, like, I'd be fine if they re-signed that guy for $2 million next year to play in the middle six. Like, whatever. He's... It's a good kid, like, fuck, man. The scary thing is, though, like, every time a whipping boy gets moved out of town, everyone kind of starts to line up on the new ones. I mean, the current, current uh, like, whipping boys who nobody has any real concern, or there's certainly not enough concern about just shitting on them. You know, obviously, uh, Nurse is always going to be there for a multitude of reasons. Um, I don't know, man. Like, I, I've said this on the, po- on the hockey podcast before, the Night Rule listeners probably haven't heard this before but like i have gone on the record saying that i think there's at least a percentage if i was to hazard a guess as to the percentage maybe 15 percent of people who criticize darnell nurse at least on a subconscious if not a conscious level just don't like having a fucking black guy be that significant a player on the team i'm sorry but like hockey is like the whitest fucking sport there is it's like it's lily white 
it's fucking waspy as fuck. And that's not to say that that's like there's anything wrong with being white, but there's something a little weird about you know in a society that's multicultural, multi-ethnic, has a wide variety of backgrounds. You know, having a disproportionate number of people from uh, the one background, and I honestly think the vast majority, probably 98% of hockey players, would agree. We want to see more people from different backgrounds play the game. It's an expensive game to play. It's a weird fucking game to play, honestly. I mean, you have ESPN, the number one rights holder broadcaster for the fucking sport in the U.S., you know, largest media market in the world, I think, possibly, right up there. And the anchors are just making fun of hockey, saying, oh, hockey doesn't count. Nobody cares about hockey. Nobody knows about hockey. Literally, they were on the air saying that like two weeks ago which was amazing. I'm really more used to like Sportsnet shitting on my team and hockey is overall as like the Canadian rights holder. I'm really familiar with them totally neglecting their responsibilities to treat the fans with like a sliver of fucking respect. Um, I mean, of course, in the long tradition of not really treating the fans with respect, CBC is the stalwart. I mean, I don't know what's going on but how they can fucking have every single time they stream a game on Hockey Night in Canada, supposedly this storied and proud tradition, Hockey Night in Canada. They should call it Shitty Hockey Night in Canada. I'm sorry. There's good people who work on it. They're all trying really hard. They're doing great work. But when every single game of the calendar year, you know, three quarters of the way into the season, when every single time you stream a Hockey Night in Canada game online, it cuts away to a random ass fucking other game three or four times every single fucking game? Every single game. This has been going on for months. Are you telling me nobody at CBC, like CBC isn't making money from anything fucking else as far as I know. I mean, maybe they're not making money from this anymore, but like what is going on? Like as, as someone not unfamiliar with the tradition of quality assurance, how is it possible that nobody has figured this fucking shit out? Like, you're broadcasting this to an audience of millions, and you just don't care that I'm watching the Oilers game, and Connor McDavid's breaking into the zone, potentially, and you cut away to the fucking Montreal game? Hey, I love Montreal. Montreal's super cool. Montreal, you know, the coolest city in Canada, obviously, clearly. I'm a little bit over Vancouver, just FYI, in case anyone didn't know. But if I'm watching the Oilers game, I don't want it to cut to the Montreal game for six seconds. And you that may seem like it's a minor inconvenience. That may seem like something that I shouldn't be making a big deal of. But I will beat the drum. If you're a national rights holder for a sport, and for months on end, every single time you broadcast a fucking game, it cuts away to another random-ass game for some goddamn reason midway through the broadcast, not only once, but like three to five times a game. Like, it happens over and over And this has happened since, like, this has been going on since October. Like, who the fuck is running the web team there? I'm sorry. It's, it's crazy. There has to be some serious-ass fucking complacency there, man. There has to be some serious-ass, like, Rogers-level complacency going on and for those of you listening in america you don't know rogers so in canada i mean it's very similar to the states in that like what would you have in the states like three four maybe five six of the most media companies if you want to have a cell phone in canada it's the same thing but we have three right and they just they're just fucking us constantly it's like just a non-stop fuck fest okay non-stop like if you knew 
what motherfucking Canadians paid to have a phone, which, I mean, I guess you could argue that not having a phone is, is uh, possible in this uh, modern life, but it certainly would put you at a dis- disadvantage. Anyways, Canadian tele- tele- telecommunications industry is a little bit fucked. And it's kind of funny that I have hockey that I have had a hockey podcast. And I'm about to talk shit on Rogers because they're another not only like a rights holder, but like the, don't they own the fucking Maple Leafs, the bastards? I mean, as if I needed another reason to hate them. Sorry, Maple Leafs fans, but like, it's it's just too much, okay? Like it's too much. Like the Toronto Maple Leafs are like, they're like Rome without any of the real accomplishments. It's like, imagine if ancient Rome, quote-unquote, never had, like, an empire. You know, Latin wasn't a thing. There was nothing really, like, that notable. I mean, you know, they won a cup in 1967 or whatever the fuck, but, like, it wasn't that impressive. But still, everyone wrote 5,000 books about ancient Rome. And everyone was talking about ancient Rome, and everyone said, you have to learn ancient Roman history. Oh, you have to learn... You have to follow the Maple... You have to learn about ancient Roman history, even though they haven't done shit. That's what the Maple Leafs are in the Canadian hockey market because as a Canadian hockey fan and again Night Rule fans I'm sorry I'm trying to make this interesting to you as much as possible I swear to God I'll talk about something else soon like you're an Oilers fan right and you open up you know the website you're like I want to look at the hockey news I want to see what's going on with my team or whatever else and it's like your team there's like literally not a single article about your team there's like zero articles about your team okay that's first off but in, in addition, there's four different articles about the Toronto Maple Leafs, including things like what they had for breakfast and uh, whether they think Ross is the best character on Friends or if it's someone else. I mean, you know, just for the record, I think David Schwimmer's performance on Friends, clearly to me, at least having revisited it in the last decade, the best performance on the show. I mean, everyone else on Friends, they kind of were sexy. They kind of they had to be... They were all in the mold of, like, someone you'd want to get with or someone who was cool, someone who was hip. Whereas David Schwimmer was the only one doing, like, a fully realized and fully kind of, like, inspiring comedic performance. It's funny, because when I watched it back in the day when it was on, he was my least favorite character. It shows uh, how uh, one's opinion can change. Yeah, but anyway, it's like, the Leafs, it's, it's just, I, I can't not but resent the Leafs. I mean, the way most of Western Canada resents the East, and probably much of Western America, probably much of any uh, peripheral kind of political polity, you know, kind of forced into submission by a bunch of people who are, like, kind of totally full of shit. I mean, as much as we all are. That's the thing. We're all kind of equally full of shit. I mean, like, let's let's do a little... Let's formulate this here a little bit. I'm, I'm being hyperbolic, and I'm being overly deductive and simplistic. But if, like, the thesis is that we're all full of shit, if we can just not pretend like we ourselves are never full of shit, maybe we can all move forward on that basis, you know? We can just have a little more understanding. I mean, yeah, like, I could look at the Oilers tonight and say, hey, you know, fuck, who was minus? Who was minus? Who was on the ice for a goal against? I'm going to criticize them. We got uh, Vinny DeHarnay, minus one. We have Evander Kane, minus one. We have Zach Hyman, paragon of all virtues. One of the most inspiring individuals to have ever played the game. He's minus two. Okay? 
if I didn't think I was full of shit sometimes, if I didn't think I was imperfect, and if I also didn't think that just shitting on other people was somehow a good use of my time, I would say, oh, you know, I'm glad we won, but, like, Zach Hyman, minus two, no points. Oh, whatever. Give me a fucking break. Connor McDavid, minus one. Yeah. You know, I'm sure Jesus had some bad days once in a while, too. You know, he lost his shit with the money lenders of the temple. That was kind of intense. Kind of also his most awesome moment. I think just culturally and as a literary figure, I would say that's that's one of my favorite episodes in the great sitcom known as uh, The Bible. All right, wow, holy shit, we're 44 minutes in. I haven't said anything of note yet. I'm way behind schedule, boys and girls and all others. Um, okay, do I want to bore the regular podcast listeners with more hockey talk, or is that just kind of silly? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I'm just over, like, like, whatever. Let's just enjoy the game. It's like, why, why can't we treat hockey players the way we treat our neighbors, you know? Just, like, pretend to be nice if you secretly hate them. If you secretly hate someone, here's the thing, like, what I'm seeing a lot out there right now like, let's take an example. Marianne Williamson, okay? Uh, kind of new age guru, writer, um, presidential candidate in 2016, and the first, I think, Democratic challenger to enter to challenge Biden in uh, the next election cycle. And it's funny because just like, I've seen a lot of people just being like, fuck Marianne Williamson, oh my God, she's so dumb. And they like, you know, of course they pull out the tweets and it's like, I gotta be honest, I'm just shocked at how much time we people are willing to put into this kind of denunci- denunciation, denunciatory, is denunciatory a word? It's not, defamatory I guess is the real word. This kind of defamatory activity. <clears throat> hey, I'm all for defaming people. You know, the legal team is well aware of the fact. I mean, the slander train has left the station a long time ago, we all know this. I'm not above it. I've done a hell of a lot of it. I mean, I've, I've maligned the character and certainly the professional, if not the character, the professional performance of uh, basically every NHL referee working in the game right now. There were some bullshit calls today. Like that call on Kane. Oh my God, he was so pissed off and I was right there with him. It's like, man, fuck you, you idiots. You stupid, stupid idiots. Like, are you fucking blind? Do you think we're fucking blind? I mean, do you think... Ugh. I mean, not to be, like, ableist or whatever. <sighs> it's a figure of speech. Anyways. As much as I've put hours and hours upon hours of defaming NHL referees in my career of this incredibly unsuccessful podcast, okay? Incredibly unsuccessful. Shockingly unsuccessful uh, I mean, maybe not that shockingly. When you consider, I mean, we all know I'm a little bit uh, scatterbrained, right? So you can all imagine trying to do a podcast on my own, especially before I just decided to do this really horrible version now that I've just started, kind of like, I've like adopted this new style and I'm, I'm going to hate it probably eventually. Eventually it will destroy me. But it's it's the don't give a fuck studios that's making all the difference because once you don't give a fuck... It really makes a big difference. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, you want to be a patron of this show? You want to follow me on Twitter? Uh, at this point, I really don't give a fuck. I'm not really, at this point, counting or even fantasizing that, like, 
this is going to be what I do. And I think a big reason why is I've realized, <laughs> I mean, maybe it's sour grapes. <laughs> Could very well just be sour grapes. But I think what I've realized or what I'm postulating at this point, and I wanted to share this with everyone because they're all podcast listeners. So this is very germane to the current conversation or rather the uh, monologue. In the interest of open dialogue, sit silently and listen to me talk. Um, there's definitely a problem with certainly like the political side of podcasting, the political side of like political co- uh, podcasts that comment on current events and news um, are really uh, kind of in like a what's the word? They're kind of all they all they're all entering a pretty fucked up plague pit, I think. I mean, I'm avoiding it. The high priest has avoided it. I mean, he's avoided it because of the he possesses the magical amulet, etc. I don't need to go over this with you all again. But I've avoided it just by being such an abject and sheer failure that just, like, no one's even really... You know, it's kind of like in Lord of the Rings if Frodo had put on the Ring of Power, but, like, no one really noticed. Or, like, he maybe didn't put on the Ring of Power, he just, like, bought another ring, you know, and put it on. Maybe, like, uh, he'd be, like, holding it up, you know, kind of, like moving his fist around, hoping that it would catch light and catch someone's attention. They'd comment on him, com- comment on it, ask him about it. He'd be like, yeah, I, I, I decided to buy this ring. That's the metaphor for this, for my, my podcasting efforts over the last few years. Like, nobody cares. And it's great. It actually much better aligns with my own interests and goals. Uh, not caring is something that I'm really well acquainted with. It's a really powerful tool. It's like a formaldehyde, you know? It can do a lot of really great things, but too much of it in the wrong context, definitely deadly. Definitely deadly. You really don't want to be not caring about anything at all or using formaldehyde on like a weekly basis or even like a quarterly basis unless you're in the medical or funeral home business. Um, Let's see, is there any other bullshit I want to say about the Oilers here? Mm, Yeah, I don't know. Just like, you know what? Like, fuck off, I guess, basically. Like, I'm so sick of just, like, pretending like, like us just, like, shitting on these, like, sports athletes as though they weren't human beings and just being like, meh. They were minus two. Like, fuck, if they were minus a billion, like, why the fuck are you spending the time thinking about it and fucking talking about it? Like, why? Why is it so important to you? Is there literally... I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there's not times where defaming people or uh, declaring oneself in opposition to other people is not totally called for and valid and important. But that's not what's going on a lot of the time. A lot of the time it's just literally like, I'm better than you, fuck you. It's like that Saturday Night Live sketch. One of my all-time favorite Saturday Night Live sketches. It was a game show and it was called You Think You're Better Than Me. And it was like Jeopardy, except the answer to every question was, you think you're better than me? In obviously a New Jersey accent. That was like the Sandler era. Sandler was definitely in that sketch. Um, uh, like, you know what? Uh, I just have to say, uh, I'm surprised everyone, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised. I'm actually surprised, like, as someone who follows politics closely, like first of all, that Democratic primary was fucking nuts. Everybody, like I've been, I've been at least in some casual form, if not more, following American presidential elections since you know I was a kid, and there's been nothing like that fucking Democratic presidential primary. It was wild, and it was really awesome for a very tiny moment for like. Not even an entire weekend. It was like between the Saturday at about 9.30 p.m. 
Eastern Standard Time until about noon the following day. There was a brief moment of time where the mainstream media, you know, uh, I will specifically call out the BBC, so much of the media just does whatever the fucking BBC says. Or rather, whatever the BBC says, they run with it. And they're like, it's the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. And I'll be honest, like, yeah, they're a legit news organization. Um, They do a lot of great work, but they're not infallible. And, like, if you don't see the specter of moribund British hegemony in the way the BBC fucking covers the news, I got news for you. It's fucking there, okay? I'm sorry. It's not as though that's all that's going on. But if you read the world news section of the BBC and you don't understand at least a little bit that they still kind of have that uh, paternalistic view of the world. They're still kind of like, hey, other uh, cultures and countries are really cute, right? But we're Britain, okay? Come cheer up, my lads, tis to glory we steer to find something new in this wonderful year. da 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 and then we committed genocide against the Irish and everyone else. Ba 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 ba. Killed more people than Hitler, but we're still pretentious, and we still expect you to worship our royalty. Even though we haven't built a new building in 200 years, like what the fuck, Britain? You conquer the world and you don't build one new building for anyone in the working class? Um, that was actually another thing I wanted to talk about. It's been on my mind. Um, as a possible podcast topic. Along the same lines as motherfuckers that pretend to give a shit about quote-unquote Western civilization, which is a total misapprehension. Like, I've heard a lot of, I mean, not a lot, lot, but enough motherfuckers going on about, like, architecture. It's come up a few times. Um, You know, the the regular kind of, like, suspects will go on about it. Like, there there was this, there's going around, it was kind of floating around about, like, the British Empire, speaking of the British Empire, and about how you know, it wasn't all bad. The British Empire did some good stuff, too. And, like, fucking Andrew Tate and these other fucking... I mean, he's kind of unique in that he's a multi-level marketing fucking scammer combined with, like, a charlatan, which is a, a really bad development, actually. He was going on about, like, oh, well, India, you know? Like, oh, well, I mean, like, the, the in India, they didn't build any good architecture other than what the British built while they were there, you know? Like, a hundred years... They didn't build any good stuff. It's like, first of all, you're like, fuck you, motherfucker. You're not sitting down reading Architectural Digest, okay? You're not going to a university and taking art history classes and studying fucking whatever the fuck. Like, you don't give a shit about architecture. Like, let's just be honest. Like, Ben Shapiro bringing up the triumphs of Western civilization in the, in the realm of architecture. Like, first off, you can't describe that to, like, this fictional idea of Western civilization, okay? Western civilization was invented in, like, the 19th century, so everyone who took over the world could feel a little bit better about themselves because they were fucking everyone over really, really hard. And we still are. Like, I'm sorry. It's really nice to pretend, like... (laughs) Like, it's nice to pretend that the rapacious, fucking brutal, exploitative, genocidal exploitation of, like, everything that wasn't nailed down for 150 years... Like, it's nice to think that that's over somehow. It's nice to think that, like, oh, that, that period of time ended, right? Like, that period of time ended... The British Empire devolved, and, uh, yeah, like, all these countries that we just, we stole all their shit for that 150 years, like, they're, they're just countries now, like the rest of us, right? They're just countries now, like the rest of us, right? Oh, uh, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, no, like, Venezuela, or Uganda, or, I mean, like, name any country that 
most of the people listening to this podcast haven't thought about in the last 10 years. All of those countries are still existing to provide two things to the powers that be, writ large, to use a oversimplified generalization. They exist to provide two things still, cheap resources and cheap labor, okay? A huge percentage of the human population alive on the earth right now are living in countries that when it comes to who's calling the shots are only allowed to and only designed to provide two things to those countries that have the power, cheap resources and cheap labor. And you tell me how that's any fucking different than the 19th century on like a meaningful level. Okay. Yeah. The British man. I mean, I love, I love the British people that know me personally know that I invariably will give twice the time and I'll have twice as much enthusiasm to get to know someone from the UK, whether it's, whether from Wales or Scotland or Ireland or wherever else. I had a Welsh mother, incredibly drawn to all that culture. Right. At the same time, the British really did some fucked up shit worldwide. And then after they were finished doing that shit, they all pretended like everything was fine. Okay. Meanwhile, every single British lawyer alive in the 20th century helped to illegally, I mean, surreptitiously move wealth offshore from this, you know, supposedly dismantled worldwide empire, right? Like, you look at any country, really, that uh, they were they were running the show. After they stopped running the show, a bunch of, like, British lawyers showed up and said, Hey, psst, psst. you want to get your money? You want to get your money out of here? Or you want to you want to pay your taxes to the state of Uganda? You gonna do that, or are you gonna? Yeah, yeah. Just put it in this bank. Let's put it in this bank. Yeah. Hey man, hey man. You got that money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take that money. I mean, I, 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 I'm lucky enough to have been educated on this a little bit. By, I think you know what I actually think I learned about the British lawyer thing from an episode of the Majority Report, one of the interviews. There's some good interviews on that show. Um, Jesus Christ, this freeform don't give a shit shit is, uh, dangerous. Let's see what else is going on. Let's just check in with everybody. Had a job interview today. Um, got a few more interviews lined up in the near future. I'm hoping to close the deal here pretty quick on one of them. Job interview is such a, it's always for me personally, I just always experience it as a, as a Kafka-esque exercise. I have decided I'm no longer going to tell people I work with that I have a podcast. That's a mistake I'm never going to make again. Yeah, it has to stay pure. It has to stay pure in the Do Not Give a Fuck studios. That's not something I'm going to compromise anymore. If I ever think about compromising it, I'll uh, just take a step back and uh, put on some kinks. That always helps. Yeah.
say about the uh democratic primary in uh did i say 2016 before i should have i should have said 2020 you know it's only four years difference i'm pulling my collar but yeah i i mean i'll be honest like for all these people just like dying to like shit on marianne williamson it's like first of all like you know i'm 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 not exactly like a stan for marianne williamson i'm not gonna go out today and canvas for her but i will i will say that i do very clearly remember and it's very clear in my mind I, I don't see anyone else remembering it but when there were 10 motherfuckers on that stage in the democratic debates 10 that's one of the things that was crazy about it right like you never saw that many people everyone was dying to get in there because there was kind of no clear front runner and everyone was just like fuck yeah let's go and you know america is all fucked up and going through all the kinds of crises, right? Like people can't get like a $1,000 operation to cure their blindness so they can go back into the workforce because apparently that's a good way to distribute your fucking economic resources, America. And it was, it was uh, for a short time, a lot of those people in the primary were pretending to be, I mean, some of them were 
very much in favor legitimately of Medicare for all and socialized medicine, which is cheaper. It's fucking cheaper. Okay. I, I really don't understand how that's not like the, the headline constantly it saves you money. But like even like Kamala Harris pretended to be for Medicare for all for a while, you know, there was a period of time where a lot of the candidates were triangulating. But even amongst that, there were a few of them that genuinely believed in it. And on that stage, when there were 10 of them on that stage, there were really only, I mean, like, let's be honest, like four of them, maybe, maybe four, maybe five, that you actually were like, uh, this person seems sincere. This person seems to be actually like adding something to the conversation in terms of like addressing the political need, which is what politics should be. I mean, like if people are debating on a presidential debate stage and they're not speaking to the needs wants and desires and realities facing the polity at large like what the fuck are they even doing there if they're there to like impress an elitist class and have the right answers for everything and never say anything real that's uh, i mean you know y'all know how i feel about neoliberalism but anyways what i want to say is what i remember was there were a few people on that stage who were legitimately speaking from the heart and saying things that i agreed with and it was bernie sanders first and foremost with a bullet obviously i mean elizabeth warren i agree with her on a lot of stuff obviously i'm uh, no one's really heard me go on and on about how i'm a huge elizabeth warren fan but she still you know was in there saying a lot of the right things for a brief time Bill de Blasio sounded like fucking Fidel Castro out there. There was like at least one time in one debate where de Blasio was just like, look, motherfuckers, like, well, you're all blind to the fact that people out there are suffering. We need to fucking help them. Basically, I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing, of course. You know, many people call him de Bungler, former mayor of New York. But it was, it was in that context of like a lot of people, there was a lot of like fiery rhetoric being thrown around there, you know, before the dream died and the various people made certain phone calls and everyone was just like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to change things too much. It's okay. It's okay. No, no, no. The insurance companies, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'll leave my car there. I'm too drunk now. I'll get it tomorrow. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But, you know, Marianne Williamson had her moments there. She was, like, speaking from the heart, you know? And, like, I don't really give a shit what she's done in the past or, like, what she said on Twitter or if she's, like, Deepak Chopra. She seems, like, a little more intelligent than Deepak Chopra to me. I'm not going to lie. I don't think that's a fair comparison. But, like... That's what I remember about Marianne Williamson. As much as I've like thought about Marianne Williamson in the last while, and yet like I, I go on, I go online. And there's people who are just like, "Fuck Marianne Williamson. She's dumb. She's she's uh, like uh, spiritual." And look at this tweet where she talks about the Earth Mother. It's like, motherfucker, like why are you bothering looking up Marianne Williamson's tweets from 2014 when she's talking about the Earth Mother? Like, sure, yeah, that's cheesy or whatever. But like the election's a long ways away. Like, what's the big, like, I, I don't I don't really see all the hate. Like, what, like, why do you even care that much? To be honest, like, my impression of her is, like, she's fine. Like, I think she's either, a, like, in terms of, like, a positive contribution to the general political discourse, I would argue for sure it's either a wash or she actually adds something positive to the, to the conversation. And, like, you know what, dude? Like, if, if, like, someone, even if she was way more hippie and way more kind of, like, woo-woo than, than I think she actually is, Fuck, if she was showing up on the stage with a fucking crystal and talking about Xanadu and how she was communicating with Jim Morrison on the astral plane, if she was also saying, look, motherfuckers, people need food, water, you know, they need trains full of dangerous chemicals to not explode in their face if they live in East Palestine. They need to be able to go to a doctor 
if they need a fucking $10 procedure to prevent a fucking million dollar illness, I'm sorry, I'd be all for that. I'd be like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get a crystal too. Whatever. Fine by me. I mean, compared to what? Compared to like, what's the alternative? Ted Cruz? You kidding me? Is Marianne Williamson one one hundredth as bad as Ted Cruz? Is she even as bad as like, like most of the neoliberal fucking hacks out there? I mean, like we're we're dealing with a vampire castle. We're dealing with like a Castlevania sequel, but with like really shitty level design, right? We're going in there and you're just like, oh, I got the whip and oh, there's Cory Booker. Eat a potion, but like, I'm sorry. I don't know. Like, fine. I guess. I guess I'm not cool because I'm not. I'm not willing to pile on Marianne Williamson as this is as as though that's the most important thing in my life. Or like AOC, I feel the same thing. Do I think AOC is perfect? No. Do I think AOC is at risk of being susceptible to all the coercive and corrupting forces of any uh, that anyone else would be facing? Sure. But like, am I going to spend my time being like AOC? Ah. Like, why? Why is that something you want to put your time into? Really. I mean, obviously, if you're in the political realm professionally, then there's actually, you know, you're, you're in that world and you're, there's some actual reason. Like, again, I'm not saying that we can't criticize people. I'm not saying we can't declare ourselves in opposition to people. But just this, like, fetishization of just, like, putting yourself above someone else and being like, I'm better than you because you tweeted about some stupid shit in 2016. I mean, maybe I'm biased because I'm tweeting about stupid shit nonstop. Thankfully, again, I'm enveloped in the protecting aura of complete anonymity and failure so as long as no as long as everyone just make sure no one pays it any attention to what i'm saying everybody if you could do your best and refrain from sharing this podcast with anyone hopefully you can just kind of like slide on by can you dig it can you handle it um as uh by way of closing remarks i will say i'm a little obsessed with a couple of movies right now well for like the last three months i've been obsessed with the accidental tourist and I've been obsessed with Fearless a little bit. I think Accidental Tourist might be my favorite John Williams soundtrack of all time. With a bullet. Motherfucker has 50 Academy Award nominations. I mean, we all know all kinds of amazing filmmakers through the years haven't had a single Academy Award nomination. So, I mean, what does that tell you? Still, it's impressive. Um... So yeah, why don't we hear uh, some John Williams from uh, the Accidental Tourist soundtrack, the name of this uh, song for the healing process. And I hope uh, you all advance uh, and achieve great things and are able to uh, measure an appreciable improvement in um, your own personal healing process. Uh, Catch you very, very soon.